0: Chapter 10 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazacchi Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 10. That night for Theodore Savage was the beginning of an odd partnership, a new phase of his life uncivilized. The girl who had clutched at him as the drowning clutch at straws was destined to bear him company for more than a winter's night and a journey to comparative safety. Being by nature and training of the type that clings as a matter of right to whomever will fend for it, she drifted after him instinctively. When she woke in the morning, in the shelter he had found for her, she looked round for him to guide and if possible feed her and awaited his instructions passively. One human being, so it did not threaten him with violence, was no more to him than another. And perhaps he hardly noticed that when he rose and moved on, she followed. From that hour forth, she was always at his heels, complaining or too wretched to complain. He would let her hang on his arm as they trudged and shared his findings of food with her because she had followed was there and it was some time before he realized that he had shouldered a responsibility which had no intention of shifting itself from his back when he realized the fact he had already tacitly accepted it and for the first few weeks of their existence in common he was too fiercely occupied in the task of keeping them both alive to consider or define his relationship to the creature who whimpered and stumbled at his heels and took scraps of food from his hands when at last he considered it the relationship was established on both sides she was his dependent after the fashion of a child or an accustomed dog and having learned to look to him for food for guidance and protection she could be cast off only by direct cruelty and the breaking of a daily habit In the beginning, that was all she followed because she did not know what else to do. He led and they hungered together. For the most part, they were silent with the speechlessness of misery. And it was days before he even asked her name, weeks before he knew more of her life in the past than was betrayed by a Cockney accent. So long as existence was a craving and a fear where nothing mattered save hunger and the fending off of present death, The fact that she was a woman meant no more to him than her dependence and his own responsibility. Thus her companionship was no more than the bodily presence of a human being whose needs were his own, whose terrors and whose enemies were his. They prowled and starved together through the long bitterness of winter in a world stripped bare of its last year's harvest, where all hungry mouths strove to keep other mouths at a distance and time and again when they grubbed for food or sought to take shelter they were driven away with threats and with violence by those who already held possession of some tract of street or country no claim to ownership could stand against the claim of a stronger and one man meeting them would avoid them slink out of their way because being two they could strip him if the mood should take them and when they in their turn sighted three or four figures in the distance they made haste to take another road. Once when a solitary wayfarer shrank from them and scuttled to the cover of a ragged patch of firwood, there came back to Theodore like a rushing mighty wind, the memory of his last days in London, the thought of his journey down to York, the strange glad fellowship of the outbreak of war, the eagerness to serve and be sacrificed, the friendliness of strangers, the dear love of England, the brotherhood, the creature who scuttled at his very sight would have been his brother in those first days of splendid sacrifice. Lord God, he said, and laughed long and uncontrollably, while the girl, Ada, stared in open-mouthed bewilderment, then pulled at his arm and began to cry, believing he was going off his head. In their hunted and fugitive life, their wanderings of necessity were planless. They drifted east or west by this road or that, as fear, the weather, or the cravings of their hunger prompted. They sought food, thought food only, and as far as possible, avoided the neighborhood of those, their fellow men, who might try to share their meager findings. House room, bare house room, stood ready for their taking in the country as well as in the town. But wherever there was more than house room, food or the mere possibility of food, the human wolf was at hand to dispute it with his rivals. There was a time when a road followed blindly, led them down to the sea and the corpse of a pretentious little watering place where stiff blank terraces of ornate brick and plaster stared out at the unbroken sea line. They found themselves shelter in a bow-windowed villa that still bore the legend, ocean view, apartments, trudged along the tide mark in search of sand crabs and fished from an iron-legged pier. When a long winter gale swept the pier with breakers and put a stop to their fishing, they turned and tramped inland again. And there was another time when they were the sole inhabitants of a stretch of a Welsh mining village. They knew it for Welsh by the street names, where they hunted their rats and grubbed for roots in allotments already trampled over. For very starvation, they moved on again, and later, how much later they could not remember, took shelter because they could go no further. In a cottage on the outskirts of a moorland hamlet where they were almost at extremity when a bitter spell of cold at the end of winter sent them food in the shape of frozen rooks and starlings and a day or two later they were driven out again theodore searching for dead birds in the snow met others engaged in the same hungry quest other and earlier settlers in the neighborhood which saw in him a poacher on their scanty hunting grounds and gathering together in a common hate and need, fell on the intruders and chased them out with stones and threats. Theodore and the girl were hunted from their homestead and out onto the bleakness of the moor, whence looking back breathless and aching from their bruises, they saw half a dozen yelling starlings who still threatened them with shouts and upraised fists. They went on blindly because they dared not stay and that for many days was the last they saw of mankind. It must have been towards the end of February or the beginning of March that they ended their long goings to and fro and found the refuge that for many months was to give them hiding and sustenance. Since they had been driven from their last shelter, they had sighted no enemy in the shape of a living man, but the days that followed their flight had been almost foodless, and in the end they had come near to death from exposure on a stretch of hill and heath-covered country where they lost all sense of direction or even of desire. There, without doubt, they would have left their bones if there had not already been a promise of spring in the air. As it was, they could hardly drag themselves along when the moor dropped suddenly into a valley, a wide strip of land, once pasture, now bleak and blackened from the passing of the poison fire, which had seared it from end to end. Here and there were charred mummies of men and of animals, lying thickest round a farmhouse, partly burned out, but beyond the burned farmhouse was a stream that might yield them fish, and with the warmth that was melting the snow on the hilltops, little shafts of green light were piercing through the blackened soil. Before dark, in what once had been a garden, They scraped with their nails and their knives and found food, worm-eaten roots that would once have seemed unfit for cattle that they thrust into their mouths unwashed. They sheltered for the night within the skeleton walls of the farm. And when with morning they crawled into the sun, the last patch of snow had vanished from the hills and the tiny shafts of green were more radiant against the blackened soil. The long curse and barrenness of winter was over and nature was beginning anew her task of supporting her children. From that day forward, they lived isolated, without sight or sound of men. Chance had led them to a loneliness which was safety, coupled with a bare possibility of supporting life, by rooting in fields left derelict, by fishing and the snaring of birds. But for all their isolation, it was long before they ceased to peer for men on the horizon to take careful precautions against the coming of their own kind with the memory of savagery and violence behind them they looked round sharply at an unaccustomed sound kept preferably to woods and shadow and moved furtively in open country and theodore's ultimate choice of a dwelling-place was dictated chiefly by fear of discovery and desire to remain unseen what he sought was not only a shelter a roof-tree but a hiding place which other men might pass without notice. Hence he settled at last in a fold of the hills, in a copse of tall wood, some four or five miles from their first halt, where oaks and larches bursting into bud denied the ruin that had come upon last year's world. Theodore, setting foot in the wood for the first time, seeking refuge, a hiding place to cower in, was suddenly in presence of the green life unchanging that blessed and uplifted by its very indifference to the downfall and agony of man. The windflowers thrusting through brown leaves were as last year's windflowers, a delicate endurance that persisted. He had entered a world that had not altered since the days when he lived as a man. He explored his little wood with precaution, creeping through it from end to end and finding no more recent sign of human occupation then a stack of sawn logs, their bark gray with mold, he decided on the site of his camp and refuge, a clearing near the stream that babbled down the valley, but well hidden by its thick belt of trees. The girl had followed him. She dreaded being left alone of all things and assented with her customary listlessness when he explained to her that the bird life in the stream would mean a food supply and that the logs ready cut could be built into shelters from the weather. She was a town-dweller, mentally as well as by habit of body, whom the spring of the woods had no power to rouse from her apathy. There were empty cottages for the taking lower down the valley, and it was the fear of the marauder alone that sent them to camp in the wilderness, that kept them lurking in their fold of the hills, not daring to seek for greater comfort. Within a day or two after they had discovered it, they were hidden away in the solitary copse, their camp to begin with no more than a couple of small lean-tos, logs propped against the face of a projecting rock and their interstices stuffed with green moss. In the first few weeks of their lonely life, they were often near starvation, but with the passing of time, food was more abundant, not only because Theodore grew more skilled in his fishing and snaring, learned the haunts of birds and the likely pools for fish, but because as spring ripened, they inherited in the wasteland around them a legacy of past cultivation fruits of the earth that had sown themselves and were growing untended amidst weeds with time with experiment and returning strength theodore made their refuge more habitable tools left lying in other men's houses fields and gardens were to be had for the searching and when he had brought home a spade discovered in a weed patch and an axe found resting on a cottage floor he built a clay oven that their fire might not quench in the rain and ewed wood for the bettering of their shelters ada when he told her where to look for it gathered moss and heather for their bed places and spread it to dry in the sun and from one of his more distant expeditions he returned with pots which served for cooking and the carrying of water from the stream spring lengthened into summer and no man came near them They lived only to themselves in a primitive existence, which concerned itself solely with food and bodily security. As the days grew longer and the means of subsistence were easier to come by, Theodore would go further afield, still moving cautiously over open country, but no longer expectant of onslaught. In the immediate neighborhood of his daily haunts and hunting grounds was no sign of human life and work, save a green cart track that ended on the outskirts of his copse but lower down the valley were plowed fields lapsing into weed beds here and there an orchard or a garden patch and hedges that straggled as they would lower down again was another wide belt of burned land which so far he had not entered trees on either side of the stream stood gaunt and withered to the farthest limit of his sight the district even when alive and flourishing had seemingly been sparsely populated its lonely dwellings were few and far apart a farmhouse here, a clump of small cottages there, all bearing traces of the customary invasion by the hungry. Sheep farming had been one of the local industries, and hillsides and fields were dotted with the skeletons of sheep left lying where vagabond hunger had slaughtered them and ripped the flesh from their bones. As the year rolled over him, Theodore came to know the earth as primitive man, and the savage know it, as the source of life, the storehouse of uncertain food, the teacher of cunning, and an infinite and dogged patience. When the weather made wandering or fishing impossible, he would sit under shelter with his hands on his knees, passive, unimpatient, hardly moving through long hours, while he waited for the rain to cease. It was months before there stirred in him a desire for more than safety in his daily bread before he thought of the humanity he had fled from, except with fear and a shrinking curiosity as to what might be happening in the world beyond his silent hills. In his body, exhausted by starvation, was a mind exhausted and benumbed, to which only very gradually, as the quiet and healing of nature worked on him, the power of speculation and outside interest returned. In the beginnings of his solitary life, he still spoke little and thought little save of what was personal and physical, cut off mentally from the future as well as from the past. He was content to be relieved of the pressure of hunger and hidden from the enemy man. End of chapter Ten. Recording by Jennifer. Mazzucci.